Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I tried so hard not to fangirl. (laughs) Dr. Niobe Wei is somebody who I have been stalking their work for so long. She's the professor of developmental psychology and the founder of the Project for the Advancement of Our Common Humanity at NYU. It's called Patch. So much to say about her that you can read the more information about her. She's written so many books, but she is a a true scholar in the field of human connection. Her work focuses on the intersections of culture, context, and human development with a very particular focus on social and emotional development, how cultural ideologies influence developmental trajectories. She has a project called the Listening Project through Patch. it aims to foster curiosity and connection in an outside, in and outside of the middle school classroom across New York City. She's also created and teaches a core course for undergraduates at NYU called the Science of Human Connection. You're going to just make all kinds of, of links in your brain when you listen to this interview because she fundamentally explains the power of what Sidewalk Talk is doing when we're disrupting people on the sidewalk and really rehumanizing one another because she said, you know what? Our entire society is set up and designed to dehumanize. That our entire definition of a healthy human is an intellectual, masculine, stoic, individualized human. But that is actually not neurobiologically the definition of a healthy human. A healthy human is connected needs people, and has emotions. You're going to have all kinds of light bulbs go off. So I might even get out a pen. Uh, This is going to be one to buckle up for, folks. Dr. Niobe Wei. All right. So Dr. Niobe, do I say Niobe? Niobe, Niobe. Niobe. Dr. Niobe Way, I should have known that because I've been fangirling you for like three years. (laughs) I I am so excited to get to to be in community with you right now. I want to read a quote that has really inspired me from the Patch website of yours. May I? Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, I'm going to just read this to everyone listening. You'll understand why I'm a fangirl (laughs) after I read this quote. Here it is. Our modern culture perpetuates dehumanizing stereotypes and maintains an individualistic mentality that privileges the self over relationships and individual success over the common good. These cultural patterns have led to a national crisis of connection in which people are increasingly disconnected from themselves and from each other. Yeah. So I've got to (laughs) know. How how did you enter into this field of study? Like, what started it for you? And, and yeah, what's kept it going? Well, you know, I just have to first say, since I've been doing this work for a long time, to ha- see your, the way you're getting the work and the passion and the, uh, and the, the fact of the exactly work you're doing uh, gives me the chills. It's so wonderful to uh, have someone who's working, you know, doing this work and gets it so deeply. So thank you is what I wanted to first say is thank you for that. Um, yay. Um, okay. So um, essentially the story is is quite simple, um, is that I in the 80s was a counselor for high school kids in Boston. And I started listening to uh, boys and girls, young women and young men, um, and I was struck by uh, the bo- young men and boys talking about their friendships and their need for friendships and their desire for friendships. And 
um, and their struggles and friendships and all sorts of things. And I didn't expect it at all. I expected taking my classes as a graduate student at Harvard. I was expecting, you know, conversations about high risk behavior, about, you know, school problems, home problems. I did not expect friendships. Um, and so when I, when they started talking about their friendships, I thought, what is going on here? This is not what I'm learning in my classes on adolescent development. Um, I'm not learning anything about friendships. I'm not even, we're not even talking about friendships um, as a relationship that's core to human development. And um, so I became obsessed, Tracy, with um, understanding what's going on with friendships among teenagers and uh, particularly among young men, because that was the story that was truly absent. And then I began a, a really a 30 year process of investigating relationships, particularly friendships. And began to hear a story and, and the story that the boys tell us, and these are boys and young men from all over the world. I do work in China. I do work in the States. We've done work in India as well. Um, and uh, they tell us a story about who we are as human and what gets in the way and leads to a crisis of connection. But I didn't hear the story until I had been interviewing kids, uh, you know, mostly teenagers, sometimes younger than teenagers, 10 to 18 um, and I follow the same kids over many years. So that's the key is that I'm following these kids. So I hear the change as they enter into, they get initiated into uh, culture during adolescence, um, the culture of manhood, quite frankly. So um, the idea is that I began to hear a story and uh, uh, that they were telling us that actually repeats the same story the larger body of science tells us. So I realized, oh my God, there's something going on here and young people are telling us the story and they're telling us what's the problem and they're telling us the solution. And the story is very simple and I'll, I'll sum it up. The story is it starts off, the first part is who we are as human. Young people show us and underscore our relational nature that we're born in relationship. Um, and so we're born wanting, starving for connection with each other. And that's basically all we want in our lives is to be deeply connected to other humans um, and to connect to ourselves as well. Um, and when I, by connecting to ourselves, I mean, I mean, seeing ourselves, feeling like ourselves are seen, but also feeling our own sense of humanity. And I always say, Tracy, you cannot see someone else's humanity if you cannot see your own. So it has to start from the place that you have to see your own humanity for you to see another one. But the boys and young men and girls and young women teach us that in there. And when you listen to them, because they talk about the ways in which they struggle to hold on to seeing their own humanity, et cetera. So we're born in relationships. That's the first part of the story. Second part of the story is we live in a culture that doesn't value the things that we most need as humans. Um, and we know that because we're in a me, me, me culture. Um, and so it's all about the self. It's all about separation. It's all about autonomy. Maturity is defined as autonomy. Maturity is, right? I mean, the, the interesting thing, Tracy, which we always have to recognize is masculinity and maturity are, are defined the same way. <laughs> so we know we know we're in trouble <laughs> uh, because the idea is that it's defined as being self-sufficient and being your own person, not needing other people, not having to rely on other people, um, being emotionally stoic. All those things that we define as maturity and manhood um, actually get in the way of our humanity, which is our desire for relationships, because it turns relationships into something that's lame and essentially girly and gay and in a homophobic, misogynist world, that's, a, that's an insult. So the idea is that, and the culture is also premised on a set which you were leading to or alluding to uh, in the quote, is um, it's premised on a, a hierarchy of humanness, which I talk about a lot. So all our ideologies, all our ideologies, patriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, heteronormativity, all that is premised on a hierarchy of humanness, which puts some humans as more human than others. That's it's simple as that. It's all all our ideological structures that I just referred to are premised on that hierarchy. So if you live in a culture that that puts certain humans over other humans and that privileges the self over relationship, right? You're going to end up with messed up humans. Uh, because it's going to decrease our capacity for empathy, for compassion, for relationships. Um and it's going to get in the way of us being finding ways to nurture those relationships. So the idea is that it's, a, it's literally, uh, Tracy, it's a clash between culture and nature. So we've created a culture that clashes with our nature. That's simple as that. And we've created a culture that is dehumanizing, 
that is privileging something rather than, I mean, I, I all, I believe in autonomy and self and independence. Obviously I'm a woman. I obviously believe in that. Uh, but the idea is that it's, it's not, it's not more important than relationships. It's, you know, the hierarchy is, is, is dysfunctional. Um, the other thing I want to throw out is that remember we take uh, another thing our culture does is we take what is, what is human, right? Thinking and feeling is human. It's a human capacity. Um, and we gender it. And we gender it, we race it, we class it, we, we sexualize it. We say thinking is for men and feeling is for women. I mean, we do, we do, we do as Western, when I say we, I mean most of Western culture, Americans lead the way in that way in, some, in many ways, um, uh, is that we have created a culture that doesn't make any sense. So not only does it clash with our nature, it doesn't make any sense because we've given the gender to basic core human capacities so, and core human needs. So we have this clash between culture and nature, and that leads to a crisis of connection, where we disconnect from ourselves what we really want, what we really need, and we disconnect from others. And we're not able to see our own humanity, and thus we are not able to see the humanity of other people. The consequences, Tracy, we see it every day. It's the violence, it's the suicide, it's the you know sexual violence, uh, police violence, uh, mass gun violence. I mean, uh, you know, gun violence rather. Uh, mass shootings is what I meant to say. Um, and the idea is that that violence directly comes from the crisis of connection. And how I know that is once again, listening to young people. So you listen to not only people who have not committed violence, they talk about how if they don't have the relationships they want, the friendships, they go wacko, they, go they feel depressed, they feel like they want to kill themselves. But you also hear it from the manifestos of school shooters they tell you the exact story, Tracy. They tell you the story that they, uh, there's a beautiful, unbelievably beautiful and very, very disturbing uh, manifesto written by um, Elliot Rogers, who did a, was a, a school shooter, a mass shooter in, in 2015. And um, he, he writes a manifesto that's about 180 pages, single spaced. And it's, it, it tells his whole life story. And when I, when I say beautiful, I mean, it's beautifully written, especially the first half of it, um, in terms of articulating his emotions uh, as a child and then searching for friendships and, and not being able to find the friendships he has and being bullied by lots of kids because he's on the shorter side in terms of height um, and the, the devastation of being bullied for years and years and years and years and always being blamed that he needs therapy rather than the culture needs to change. And that's a devastating thing to tell anyone, that the problem is you, not the culture in which you live. And that's what we do, Tracy. We do that every single day. We say the problem is you, it's not the culture in which you're situated. And what happens is when you tell a person that, when you tell a person that's being bullied by a culture, which is what we're doing to each other, you tell them it's your problem and you need to go see a therapist. I have nothing wrong with being a therapist and seeing a therapist. But when it's only seeing a therapist, it makes them go crazy. Uh, and that's exactly what Elliot Roger talks about. You see his, as he slowly gets essentially crazy and he starts to say crazy things in the manifesto, but you see that beginning the disconnect with constantly being told again and again, it's his problem. It's not the problem of the culture in which he's embedded. So, so the crisis of connection leads to violence, pure and simple. And then the solution also comes from listening. The fifth part of the story also comes from listening to young people. The solution is to get back to who we are as human, right? Is to get back to who we are as human, but also disrupt the culture that actually caused the problem. And that's the part of listening that comes in that's so critical. And I hope, to, uh, I hope you ask me about our listening project because you know, that, that is really the intervention, the intervention. I'm not gonna say an intervention, I'm gonna say the intervention of actually beginning to listen to each other in new ways so that we can get back to that first part of the story of who we are as human and listening to ourselves and each other and then begin to disrupt this pattern of, you know, create a culture that's more in sync with our nature, put simply, right? How do we create a culture that's more in sync with our nature? Well, we get back to actually what we want and need most in, the, in our lives, right? And that actually, we, we, know this, we know the answer, Tracy. It's within ourselves. And it's just a matter, and young people have reminded us of that. They haven't taught us that. They've reminded us of that. And then we need to take what they're telling us seriously. So the story is very simple in the sense, it all goes back to listening to young people who tell us a story about who we are, what gets in the way, the problems and the solutions. And now we need to step up to the plate 
and say, okay, we know what to do. Now let's do it. So I'm trying to withhold a scream of excitement, listening to everything that you said so succinctly. So I will try to be a sane, rational human being here and not get overly excited. And yes, I will ask you about the listening project. I totally want to know what transformative interviewing is, but I have to share the story. I still, I still, well, first of all, I'll say this about therapy. I have a a, a real allergy to dogma, including psychological and psychotherapeutic dogma. And one of the first things that has happened for me is for so many couples that will come in to see me, A, I can feel the dehumanizing socialization of men, especially when I have couples of a certain age, and then they come into therapy feeling really confused about how to even be connected. And I don't want to say that it's always men. Sometimes it's women. I think it is getting better when I work with younger couples. But but the second piece is I I'm like this isn't your fault. This is this isn't your parents' fault either. This is the culture's fault. I said, I look, you guys are really stressed out because you've got two little babies and you've got a healthcare system that, that didn't yeah. actually give you parental leave. Exactly. And that's not an issue inside of you. That's an issue yeah. in the culture. Yeah. No, so exactly. I'm so on board with that. Yeah. And I mean, it's a, it, you could go so many things. I mean, just to, to say to all your listeners, we live in a society in which you have to make a lot of money to have a roof over your head. Like, we are such a nasty, nasty, nasty culture. We, we not only don't care about your health and we think we should, you should have to pay a lot of money to, to, when you're sick, but we actually fundamentally think you should have to pay a lot of money to have a roof over your head. Like housing in New York City, I don't care what neighborhood you're talking about. I don't care what city you're talking about. Um, you have to make a lot of money to, to, to afford a house over your, a roof over your head. I mean, that is so brutal. And that's the society we live in. You know, that's a capitalist society. And that is putting certain humans over other humans because it's saying that if you're rich, you're somehow more human and more deserving of being treated as a human than if you're poor. And that's what I mean by hierarchy of humanists. We have to see that rather than joining sides, oh, I'm on the uh, white supremacy team in terms of disrupting white supremacy or I'm on the feminist team disrupting patriarchy. Tracy, we have to understand that these ideologies are intersectional and, and, and they are fundamentally the same ideology. It's about taking a certain group of people and privileging not only those people, but the associated qualities of those people that make no sense. So we, uh, you know, we appreciate, we value the rational over the irrational. Well, first of all, what? <laughs> like, you know, there can be rational, emotional you know, feelings as well as there can be irrational cognitive uh, thinking, right? So that doesn't, the, the split doesn't even make any sense. But the idea that we, are, uh, you know, value the rational over the emotional is a false split. I mean, there's all these false splits we make because we have associated with the people in power a certain set of qualities that we value. Um, and this, in a dissociated way, Tracy, I say as an insider to you in terms of dissociation. And then the notion is that then we ask people to live in the society and thrive. You know, what, 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 you know, like, what? So, so the idea is that it's really drawing attention to the fact that our, there's a fundamental belief system in the, in our society. And again, I mean, I don't just mean Americans, although I think Americans have been the the main perpetuators of this value system, unfortunately, one of the main, um, is that this, if it's premised on certain humans are more deserving of being treated as humans than other humans. And that part of that hierarchy is that certain human qualities and needs, right, are only associated with those on the top. What kind of society is that? What kind of society is that? So we, we have to see we have to see the problem, Tracy. And this is what I, I sort of rant on a lot. And the reason why I'm able to say it so succinctly, quite frankly, because I've been screaming it on the top of a mountain for a long time. Um, you know, and this is again what the young what the young people teach us, right, or remind us of, is that you know we have to see the root of the problem because if we keep on going back to the problem is really you know income inequality or the problem is really climate change or the pro- uh, not, uh, climate you know craziness um, or the problem is uh, you know racism or sexism or homophobia. No, that's a symptom of the problem. That's a symptom of the problem. And so the problem is, is that we have created a culture that's based on this hierarchy of humanness. And so it's very, very critical that we stop 
taking the symptom and treating it as if it's the problem because it's a symptom of a problem. And once we see that it's a symptom of a problem, again, listening to young people who teach us that and how they talk about their lives and what they struggle with, if we see that it's the symptom of the problem, not the problem, then we can fix the problem. Right? Once, we see the, once we see the root of the problem, right, then we can fix it. Then we can do things like, hey, when we gender thinking and feeling, that doesn't make any sense because we know that all people think and feel. And when you start listening and doing interviews and doing exactly what you're doing on the street corners, um, you begin to say even more strongly, hey, wait a minute. These binaries don't make any sense. These hierarchical binaries make no sense. They're incoherent. Why do we perpetuate this? And then the question is, rather than just engaging, why do we do it? Um, change it. Change it. Normalize it. I mean, I have to tell you one story, Tracy, that's very powerful for most uh, people who hear it. I'm in a classroom, 22 boys, boys of color predominantly, 12-year-old boys in the classroom. I'm at the head of the classroom. I read a quote. Um, I'm going to read a quote. Can I read a quote? Can I read a quote from this book? Please read a quote. Yep. You're reading from Everyday Courage, yeah? Okay. I'm reading from uh, Deep Secrets. Uh, it's okay. a book, Deep Secrets, Boys, Friendships, and the Crisis of Connection. Okay. So um, the quote, this is a quote from one of the boys in, the, um, in, the, in my research on friendships. And I read it to the 12-year-old boy. So I'm reading it aloud to the boys. Um, my, so I asked the kid in my research, his name is Justin, that's obviously a pseudonym. Um, and he says, um, I say, tell me about your friendships. And he says, my best friend and I love each other. That's it. You have this thing that is deep, so deep it's within you. You can't explain it. It's just a thing that you know that that person is that person. And that is all that should be important in our friendship. I guess in life, sometimes two people can really, really understand each other and really have a trust, respect, and love for each other. It just happens. It's human nature. And that's Justin at, at 15 years old. And those kinds of quotes I've heard for now almost three decades from, from young people, uh, from young boys in particular at 13, 14, and 15. So I say, I read the quote and all the boys start to giggle. And I know exactly why they're giggling because I, I, I know exactly the homophobic society we live in. So I, I, they all start to giggle and I say, tell me why you're laughing. And they won't tell me. And I said, oh, come on, tell me why you're laughing. And I said, I know why you're laughing, but I want you to tell me. And then one guy says, well, you know, the dude sounds gay. And I said, well, let me tell you, I don't, I don't ask kids about their sexuality, so I don't know. But let me tell you that 85% of the boys I speak with over, you know, I've spoken with over at that point, it was 25 years, um, sound like that at some point during their teenage years. That's what they sound like. That's what teenage boys sound like. And all the boys, all the 12-year-old boys, totally silent. And then one boy says, for real? And I was like, for real? That's what teenage boys sound like. That's really what they sound like. And within one second, Tracy, it, made, it brought tears to my eyes when this happened. The whole classroom, all the boys want to talk about their friendships. They all want to talk like Justin just talked in the quote. And so they start sharing their friendships their struggles and their friendships. Two boys in the classroom even admit to have broken up with each other in their friendships because the other boy hurt his feelings. And they talk about it in the class with 22 boys sitting there. And, and that the only intervention I did, Tracy, the only intervention I did is I normalized that desire. I normalized it by saying 85, that's what teenage boys sound like. And all of a sudden you had a room full of 12 year old boys you know, and if you know, if you, you know, 12 year old boys, but you know, you know, 12 year old boys who normally are moving around in their seat and they can't quite stay, pay attention. And they're certainly not interested in sitting around talking about emotions. Um, and they're all talking about their friendships. And so it's this, this whole idea. I mean, it's, it's, it was powerful. And I thought the intervention is I just, I just normalized it. I just said, Hey, this isn't weird. This isn't gay. You know, even though, you know, that's buying into the fact that being gay, that being gay is a negative thing, obviously, is, is a is a deeply homophobic belief. But the idea is it's, it's not special to one group of people. It's just a human thing. Um, and, and then all of a sudden they cha they changed their they changed what they were willing to reveal. So I just think that, you know, the message is so powerful to me. It's not hard to change the culture. It's not hard. We do it all the time. We change the culture all the time. We went from Obama to Trump. That was a major cultural change. We're now back to Biden, 
you know, major cultural change. We have Black Lives Matter. We have the Me Too movement. That's all massive cultural change over the past five years. We can totally change the culture. And Tracy, as you alluded to before, we already are in many ways toward this more relational framework. We're already starting to get there because we're so isolated and, you know, we've so hit the bottom of the barrel that we're now sort of desperate to actually pay attention to our relational needs. So I, I just think this whole sense of, when I say change the culture, it sounds like, oh, yikes. You know, how do we change the culture? No, 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 no. We, we're doing it all. We're doing it every day. We change the culture. Um, and so the idea is to build a momentum, you know, so that people understand, stop, stop choosing sides about what issue you're, you're, you're most passionate about. Choose the side of we live in a deeply dehumanizing society. And we express that in all sorts of ways based on race, class, gender, sexuality, religion, you know, you name it, nationality, et cetera. Whether you're an immigrant, not an immigrant, refugee, not a refugee, et cetera. Uh, it's all the same hierarchy of humanists. We do not want to live in a culture that has a hierarchy of humanists. So how do we begin to build our schools, our workplaces, our homes, our personal lives, our interactions on the street corner, sitting in a chair? How do we begin to create opportunities, um, right? to see our common humanity, but even more importantly, to disrupt what gets in the way of our humanity. Because if it's just about, this is what I always say to social emotional learning people, if it's just about holding hands and being nice to each other, it's not gonna get far because we're not disrupting the fundamental structure that creates the problem, right? That creates income inequality, that creates homelessness that creates climate change problem. I mean, the fact that we're not doing anything about it. Um, so the idea is that's, that those are all symptoms of something deeper and this is what's deeper. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, it's, it's to, to me, Tracy, the message is very optimistic. It's not, it's, I'm not giving a pessimistic message. I'm saying we have within ourselves to create the change. We're already beginning to do it. Now let's really come and make it a movement where we say we want to take our culture back <laughs> to more align with our, our nature and build healthy, thriving communities. Woo, lady, I love it. Oh, my. You know, and here's what I admire about what you're doing. So I kind of fell into this accidentally, okay? And it just came from an inner sort of shift and probably a little rebellion on my part because I think I was also that kid that you would have interviewed, right, on some level. Yeah. Um, and then I have sons who are very vocal and, you know, <laughs> they know the language toxic masculinity, for example. <laughs> and yeah. I said, well, what is toxic masculinity yeah. to you? And he said, this is exact, this is out of when he was nine. He says, toxic masculinity is when a boy on the playground gets smacked in the face with the ball accidentally. And he, you start to see that he wants to cry and ask for help, but he doesn't. And he acts tough like it really didn't bother him. That's how well, my son, how he defined it. I said, well, I think that's a pretty darn good explanation of toxic masculinity. Masculinity. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's worth writing down, actually. That's beautiful. I should do that. But where's yeah. what I admire about what you're doing? Because, you know, you know, I still don't know exactly what we're doing at Sidewalk Talk. We're, we're disrupting on the sidewalk. And I always tell people, I don't want to just have an app where people call in because they're lonely. That's not what we're about. We're about disrupting yeah. the culture. When you're walking down the sidewalk, you're usually doing something and going somewhere. And I'm saying, no, we're here to connect, not to do something or go somewhere. I love, yeah. though, that you're getting these kids young with the listening project. So I believe that you're starting, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of growing beyond the middle school classroom. So would you be will, willing to say more about the listening project? And I, yeah. really, I really want to know what transformative yeah. interviewing is. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, basically, and, and a lot of the premises are, are stuff you're do, already doing on the on the street corner. So, so first of all, I want to start. Um, I I tell I talk through stories just like you do, Tracy. So, um, I want to tell you a quick story that led to the listening project in part, even though it was mostly the research that we did with boys. But it also started with my son when he was um, five. Um, we were going. I was going through a divorce with his dad, and um, I was very conscious about not making you know the home climate too depressing so i didn't want to always be sort of you know a sad quality to the home environment so i remember and you have to imagine you have to remember that he's five so he's i come home from work i come in the apartment he's sitting at the table 
eating something and I say to him with a big smile on my face, I say, hi, Raphael, how was your day? How are you doing? And he looks at me and within a second, he looks at me and he says, mommy, why would you smile when you're feeling sad? And I thought, oh my God, oh my God. You know, basically what he was saying at five years old is why are you faking an emotion? Why are you faking an emotion? And I, that story, when that happened, was the first time I, it hit me that it's not just about friendships among boys or it's about, you know, they're not, it's, you know, it's, it's not just about the kinds of things that I've been writing about for decades. Um, it's actually deeper. It's that as humans, we have extraordinary emotional acuity. We have, we read the emotional world and we see the contradiction in unbelievable ways. What animal besides humans could say, why are you smiling when you're feeling sad? Meaning the understanding of faking an emotion, right? And at five. And then what we do, Tracy, is we smash it right out of you because we don't value that quality of knowing. We don't nurture it in the schools. We nurture intellectual curiosity, not interpersonal curiosity, right? We don't, we don't actually encourage that curiosity. In fact, we say things like curiosity killed the cat. So we actually think interpersonal curiosity is gossiping, it's trash talk, it's stuff that's, that's not made for school, that school's about intellectual curiosity, not interpersonal curiosity. Anyway, so with that understanding and seeing my son and then my daughter saying amazing things as well about you know, who believes in, in uh, gender stereotypes, she told me at nine. And then when I said, well, that's a great question, who believes in gender stereotypes? We were talking about math, uh, math stereotypes uh, with girls. And then uh, she said, why do we believe in things we know aren't true? Uh, and, you know, another question, nine-year-old, you know, nine-year-old girl saying, why do we believe in things that aren't true? And, you know, just another profound question that we do in our culture. We believe in things that we know are not true. Um, and so the idea is that knowing that young people know things and they're connected to things. And I, I wrote a paper once called, is growing up good for your health? And, uh, and the answer was no, because growing up, <laughs> no, no, really, because growing up in this culture makes you stupid. You, you disconnect from what you know about the contradictions in the world. I have a niece that said at eight years old, why do girls catch the, out, uh, the ball in the outfield saying, I think I got it. And boys say, I got it. You know, she said, why, why, Aunt Niobe, why do, why do the girls do that? Um, and so the idea is they see things, they recognize it, they see emotions, they see the contradiction. They ask why, the two-year-old why, that we shut, they sh we shut them down with that curiosity. Uh, we, we basically said it's not appropriate or, it's, or I don't know the answer and, you know, enough of the questions already. So we grow up and we become dumb. Uh, and we go underground with actually what we know about the world, and then we act dumb uh, in terms of how we treat each other. So the listening project is very much premised on engaging with, I've been teaching methods to doctoral students for decades, uh, and I've been teaching a method that we have now called transformative interviewing. It's a method that was co-developed with a former doctoral student of mine who's now a professor at Swarthmore, Joseph Nelson, and Crystal Clark, who's also um, now leads Patch and leads the listening project. And uh, we've been developing this method that's really comes out of teaching methods to doctoral students, but we've been doing it with middle school students uh, for the past five years. And now we're in many, many middle schools across New York City. Um, and I'll tell you where else we are in a second. Um, but the idea is that we train young people in the method of transformative interviewing that is a method that comes from uh, learning how to listen to yourself and listen to another person in ways that sees the self and the other outside of a set of stereotypes. So the problem is not just that I stereotype you, Tracy, and you stereotype me. It's that we stereotype ourselves because <laughs> these stereotypes infuse our own identities. So boys, for example, in, even though your son is able to say that at nine, whether he likes it or not, he is getting infused with a sense of his own identity based on those stereotypes. So the idea is that the listening is about, for example, I'll give you an example. So listening, we reimagine listening. Listening is not about just as you, when you ask seventh graders what listening looks like, they go, you know, they, they just put their mouth shut. They don't say anything, right? They think that's listening. And I said, well, actually, oftentimes that listening is just spacing out, 
right? And waiting for your turn to talk. So I said, you know, basically it's not oftentimes really listening. Um, and then, and then I'll say, well, what does listening sound like? And they'll go, what, what are you talking about? Listening doesn't sound like anything. And I'll say, no, no, what does it sound like? And they'll finally get it. And I'll say, it's about asking follow-up questions. It's asking clarifying questions. It's asking someone, so then what happened? So then how did you feel then? And then what happened? And then, you know, et cetera. And that's when people report feeling listened to when someone's asking a lot of curate, what we call curated follow-up questions, you know, so that someone actually feels listened to. And then the other thing is that what are the questions you're asking? When you ask a homeless person just about being homeless, um, that's actually keeping them in a stereotype that all they have to offer is the experience of being homeless. When you ask a homeless person about their first time they fell in love or their best friend when they were in eighth grade, you all of a sudden, your questions are literally allowing them to experience themselves and you to experience them outside of a set of stereotypes about what their, what their worth is in the world. Um, and the same with black kids and Latino kids and Asian kids, et cetera. When you ask them not just simply about their race or ethnicity, et cetera, or you ask white kids about their race, right, and how their race shapes who, how they see themselves, you know, you allow them to see themselves outside of a set of rigid stereotypes about who they are. So the idea is the idea is that the questions that you ask actually creates a kind of listening that that feels that you feel listened to, which is critical. The second term is uh, that we reimagine is curiosity. We need both interpersonal and intellectual curiosity, and in fact, Tracy, we argue one is 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 intersectional with the other. I can ask you, Tracy, about the history of I don't know what your family history is, but I can ask you about your family history back 500 years, that's intellectual history. And then I can ask you situated in that family history, that's interpersonal history, uh, right, curiosity. So that's intellectual curiosity and interpersonal curiosity. We need both in the classroom. We need to be asking questions about where your parents came from and their story and the story of the teacher and where the teacher and this teacher's experience and their, her relationships and how it shapes her teaching thing. I mean, all sorts of interpersonal questions need to be in the classroom. Uh, because that sparks our intellectual curiosity and ultimately it builds connection at the root of all good connection, Tracy, we found in our research is interpersonal curiosity. You can't have good relationships if you're not curious about the other person. So the idea is nurturing interpersonal curiosity uh, in the students who are being trained. And then the final thing is learning, uh, learning and connection, actually, which is the notion of learning is always, this is the screwed up thing about schools. Learning is always about you give me information and then I learn it. It's very passive. If I actually, if education became actually learning the answers to my own questions by listening to your experiences of something, right? So the idea is that the listening project and transformative interviewing is all about tell me your deep, thick questions and then, and then tell me who you're going to interview to learn the answer to your question by listening to their experiences of whatever topic you're interested in. And you're going to learn about it and it's going to transform you because you will have learned something for, about yourself from listening to somebody else. And so I'll give you an example. Um, little, uh, you know, there's a young guy. I didn't mean to say little. Uh, all kids hate when I refer to them as kids either uh, as well. So a young person, I have be sensitive. Uh, a young person in seventh grade, I won't say his name, it doesn't matter, I'm working with him right now. He's in, he's in a classroom at the school that I work in at the moment. And he sort of presents as uh, sort of a tough kid. You know, he doesn't show his face on Zoom. He has on his image, it's some sort of um, fighting character on his image uh, that you see, you don't see his face. I, I go around the room and I say, tell me all your, what, I explain what thick questions are, your questions that you carry around in your life. And I said, tell me your thick question. You're going to interview people around that question. Okay. So it has to be a question that you really want to ask for the next few weeks, because we're going to be focused on that question. You getting the answer to your own question for listening to another person. So this kid, let's call him, uh, Steven. Um, Steven says, you know, it's Steven's turn. And I think he's, Steven's going to give something. I assume that's, I, I stereotype him, right? I assume he's going to give some kind of question like what's your favorite sports team or uh, so, something that doesn't reveal himself. And he says, he says something and I can't hear him. 
And I said, Stephen, can you can you speak up a little bit? And he goes, and then he repeats it again. And then I still can't quite hear him. And then someone sort of yells at him in the class and says, you know, you have to put your sp- microphone near your mouth unless, or else we can't hear you, you know? And so I think, oh my God, now he's been shamed. Now it's going to be like impossible to get him to say his question. So I said, so Stephen, what's your question that you carry around with you in your life that you really want to know the answer to by listening to another person? And he says in this very, very quiet voice, he says, what is it like to feel safe? And I said, can you hear me? He said, what is it like to feel safe? And he said, I Where can you- hear you. I'm just touching my, I'm like, oh. I know, I know. I know. And he said, to, I want to know what it feel, where they feel safe and what it feels like. And I was like, literally, wow. my, uh, and I just thought, oh my God, here is Stephen, Mr. Cool Kid, Mr. I will not show my face, I will not engage. And then his question is, where do you feel safe? And he spends the next two weeks interviewing his peers and his parents around where they feel safe and asking que- curated questions and getting the answer to his own questions. And that is the listening project. And that we do this, it's a six, it's an eight week, six to eight week curriculum in English classes. Um, it's having profound effects according to our research on deepening connection, uh, a sense of a common humanity, empathy, uh, curiosity, obviously listening skills, obviously. Um, and now we're doing it in after school programs across New York City. We're now training the, we're trying to train the entire NYU uh, faculty, administrators, students in the listening project. David Brooks from the New York Times took took our listening project uh, workshop on transformative interviewing. Um, I've been approached by big corporations like Amazon to to train their employees in this approach. Um, and so it's it's a very um, it's a very powerful method to essentially Tracy reconnect ourselves with ourselves and with each other by learning from another person by listening right? In terms of interrupt, we even talk about interrupting as a core part of listening at times for clarification. And then, and then nourishing that beautiful interpersonal curiosity that we have uh, naturally. And when you get doctoral students to interview seventh graders, which do you think are better interviewers? The doctoral students who have been rigorously trained or the seventh graders in the first part of their training? Which is better? No, seventh graders, for sure. They don't have all the baggage. The seventh graders, for sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Obviously, the seventh graders interview the doctoral students. The doctoral students are blown away by their skills. And they're like, where'd they get those skills? And I said, well, first of all, they were a little bit scaffolded uh, by our team. But more importantly, those are just human skills. So when boys interview me, they have to interview me as part of a, a classroom assignment. They ask questions like, Tracy, and I kid you not, these are the questions that come out of 12 year olds. Um, Group of boys, again, another boy, group of boys. I work in a, a bunch of boys' schools at the moment. So a group of boys, their question is, first of all, I tell them I'm divorced. They ask me their very first question, do you still love him? Do you still love him? This is their first question. Uh, does he know that you still love him? Does, how do you show that you still love him? Uh, how do your kids, uh, how do you support, how did you support your kids when you got divorced? How do you, how the kids support you when you got divorced? And you have to imagine these boys are like raising their hand, trying to be called on to ask their question of me. And the whole room, I have tears in my eyes in this conversation because I can't believe the depth of their questions. And they're listening with their bodies are not moving and they're leaning in. And it's 25 boys leaning in, 12 year old boys leaning and listening to some, you know, white lady that's probably the age of their grandmother's you know, talk about love with her ex-husband. I mean, that's what you get when you, when you open up humans' interpersonal curiosity. You get, you get humans, Man. you know, rather than stereotypes of 12-year-olds. I am so into Yeah. You need to have, like, Lisa Ling's program come videotape this so we could change the whole – I know you're getting lots of calls, and you're going to – we're going to – you're going to – you're blowing this up, right? This is going to go yeah. everywhere, right? Yeah, I, I want to. I want to. And Tracy, I want your thing to also go everywhere. So I think that we have to figure out some way where you're on the corner. We have to join forces in some way. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, I'm serious, Tracy. I, I think we have to figure out. I love the out in the public outside and I'm inside. 
and you you, you start to, to disrupt both inside and outside. I, I do the disruption inside, you do the disruption outside, but that we're, I mean, I, I think there's some really interesting possibilities there of doing some, I mean, I love what I love actually is a show that show you what you're doing and what we're doing and then, and then linking them together. You know what I mean? Cause I, I just think that it's, well, since, we're, create- since, we're, since we're daydreaming, can I share, can I tell yeah. you the big dream? I want, yeah. I want listening stations with directions on how to do it as permanent installations on every major city thoroughfare. Like in San Francisco, oh. they're changing market street into a no car zone. And I'm like, I would like to have a setup of listening chairs. And then I also have recently talked to, I think museum spaces are oftentimes spaces for the elites. And I'd like to have museum spaces be spaces for community. And I'd like to have listening chairs in the foyers of every museum where you can sit down and talk about and be curious about the impact of that museum experience on the museum goers, where anyone can just plop down. And we've done this before at conferences where I set up our chairs and I had little signs made about the instructions. If you're going to sit in this chair as a listener, you're just going to sit here and wait until yeah. someone sits down and wants to share their story with you. And I yeah. come out from a conference session, Neobi, and Every chair was full of people sitting, waiting, being willing to listen to a stranger. It was incredible. And I'm, yeah, so I'm sorry. I'm catching the bug. I'm getting no, no, excited. But, 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 you know, there's another, uh, okay, so Trace, <laughs> at another point, uh, but I, I am trying to create this because I, I'm, I'm too old to now do things small. Like it's, I'm too old. So I, I need to be at this point in my life. And Tracy, I'm sure you feel the same way at this point, you know, I got, I got half my life lived. Hopefully I have another good chunk of my life, hopefully. Um, but the idea is that, okay, now we need to make this big. We need to bring, come together, work collectively. No more individual organizations at one at a time. You have to blend, you have to bring together organizations. I'm trying to very much create this national campaign uh, with multiple organizations. So Tracy, you guys are definitely a part of this uh, to create actually a national strategy of how to address the crisis of connection. And so it becomes a national strategy. Um, where we're doing things in all our cities and our towns and our small villages and, and this, you know, and eventually, because there's a lot of uh, requests from outside of the States too. I mean, in fact, there's, you know, lots of interest in, in what we're doing outside. Uh, we, we do some work in Ethiopia. We do some work in uh, United Arab Emirates because I teach over in Abu Dhabi. Um, and uh, anyway, so I just think that, that we have to work collectively, Tracy. So fist bump. I, I, yeah, totally. And I'm with you. And I just met a guy here in Germany and I, he asked for my help and, and I'm sort of, sort of quasi on their founding board called the Togetherness Hub, where he's actually bringing together an international consortium around loneliness, although they're now changing it to human connection. So of course I will make that introduction. I think all your, all your peers that you already, but he's, they're bringing together some folks from the Japanese government and, you know, Israeli government all over the world. It's, it's, ah, but but you, but you have the science behind it. You're not just the feel good piece. You've got all the science and you're starting to study because we can have all these nice ideas. And that's what I hope to do is eventually start studying what the impact of sidewalk talk is. But I really want, I, what I hear you saying is that it's time for you to leave a legacy in the culture. You have all these close, intimate, heart-centered connections with these boys. And I can only imagine being in your shoes that you feel indebted to them to somehow yeah. change the world within which they're coming up and to your, and, and on behalf of your own children, your own son. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is the thing. So because I, because I'm actually, uh, I've always been a reader um, and because I'm a, I'm a hardcore empiricist, meaning I, you know, everything I say comes out of data. It's not, I'm not interested in just sharing opinions um, is uh, I feel a responsibility as an adult uh, because I feel like if you look at the research, you look at the body of research over the entire 20th century and into the 21st century, you have studies in 1905 showing that boys and girls want friendships in which you can share deep secrets. Farm boys in Illinois in 1905, thousands of them talked about how much they want emotionally intimate friendships in 1905. So I'm just saying, if we have evidence from the science over the 20th century and into the 21st century that humans need each other and we thrive in relationship with each other. And when we don't have that, we get lonely, we get sick, we die, 
we get all sorts of diseases, we get colds, we know that connection is linked to being healthy, physically healthy, um, and we don't respond to it, Tracy, then are you kidding me? We're not being a human. So we have an enormous amount of knowledge, and I've called this in a new book I'm, I'm writing for Harvard University Press called The Science of Human Connection. And it tells the five-part story, but not just from the young people, because it's the young people that are telling the story that I heard it from, but it's in the larger body of science. It's in the social psychology, social neuroscience, anthropology, you know, biology, primatology, uh, sociology. I mean, it's in those sciences that uh, that tell us that five-part story. Nobody sees it as a five-part story. You know the parable about the blind men who all touch different parts of the elephant, but they don't see that it's an elephant? That's the parable of the sciences. We're all divided into different disciplines, and we don't see the larger problem. And the larger problem is the, the elephant in the room, literally, is the crisis of connection that's caused by these, these facts that these disciplines are not talking to each other. So they actually talk to each other and tell a five-part story called the, I'm calling the science of human connection, which is about who we are as human, what gets in the way, what leads to a crisis of connection, and then, and then the consequences and the solution. That's also in this book that uh, I don't need to show because it's a podcast, but it's in my crisis of connection book too, that uh, I came out with Pedro Nogueira and Alicia Ali and Carol Gilligan. Um, but the idea is that I mean, it's that is an action-packed book of so much yeah. good science, and I cannot say for anyone, anyone yeah. in this field that 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 is the book they need to own for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I just say all, all I'm saying is that it is a result of over a century of knowledge in the sciences and in the practice. Right, science and practice has told us the same thing for over a century. So if any adult out there is listening, doesn't feel responsibility <laughs> to create a more humane, just and humane world, shame on you. Uh, because we have known this for a long time. We know exactly why we ended up electing Trump. We know exactly why we're in such a mess with hate crimes and you know why police violence has, uh, against black people hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Uh, we know exactly why the status of women is still so screwed up. Um, you know, gay people, uh, Muslim people. I mean, you, you could go on and on and on. We know exactly why. And now the question is using the knowledge, using the science to begin to disrupt this um, and to come together to create a better, a, a more humane, just and humane culture. So I would say, yes, I feel a responsibility, Tracy. I absolutely do. But I think I, I really want, as with you, I want everyone to feel the responsibility because that's the only way we're going to change is that for our, the future generation, for ourselves, for the future generations, um, listening, listening to what we've learned over a century by listening to young people. You have it even in The Catcher in the Rye in the 1940s, in Na the book Native Son by Richard Wright in the 1940s. They tell the same story, that their humanity is rooted in their desire for relationships. And then when they live in a racist or patriarchal culture, and or, I mean, and, actually not and or, and culture um, that then disrupts their ability to find what they need. And in Bigger Thomas's case in Native Son, he commits, uh, you know, acts of violence. And in, in, uh, in you know, in Catcher in the Rye, for those of you who don't remember it, uh, you know, he ends up just isolating himself uh, because essentially he can't find people who are, who are not phony, which is that desire for real people, real authentic conversations. So you get it in fiction, you get it in the science, you get it in the practice, you know, shut up and listen, right? I mean, just shut up and listen. And then you understand the root of the problem and the solutions. And now it's all of our responsibility to move forward and to use what we know in ourselves, as well as what we know about others, to act and to create a world in which we're not dying at such incredibly high rates of suicide, that we're not killing each other through opiate addiction, that we're not, I mean, all the kinds of things, having enormous homelessness problems in the richest city in the world, New York City, or one of the richest cities. I mean, you know, I mean, basically, those kinds of things should be intolerable for us, should be intolerable, um, uh, because we have the capacity to do something, you know, much better, and much more humane and just. And so it just it's it's a, uh, I, I want to encourage every listener to to begin to act in your own life to transform how we treat each other, how we see ourselves and how we treat ourselves and each other. Well, I love how you almost answered that last sort of 
question that we ask as our closer, but I'll ask you again. I know we're at the end of time and I could go on and on, but I don't, I just think this is the beginning for us. So I'm not going to fret about that, but I will ask, give you another opportunity. Again, there's just so much I want to say. I'm I'm so on board with everything you're saying. Um, But there are these people around the world that do do this work, sometimes sitting in the cold, sometimes sitting in the rain, on, on sidewalks with loud buses going by, people looking at them like they're strange, weird people. Like, why are you just to listen? And they don't get it until they sometimes come out. And we actually have homeless folks, folks that don't have homes that come listen alongside of us. Like we're all equals in this project together. Yeah, what nice. might you want to say to them as, as our way to part ways today in this conversation? What would you want to offer to our listeners around the world, either advice or words of wisdom, Niobe? Well, I think it's to really start from the place uh, that we're born human and uh, to connect to what we know, what you know, what you as an individual know about your own humanity and to start from that place of, of that someone who robs and steals and rapes and kills was not born that way. So if we understand that nobody's born that way, we become that way as a result of something happens. The question not is how do we punish that person, but how do we understand what happened so that it doesn't happen again, right? So that you have to, we have to change our starting point. There's a beautiful story about two women meet on the corner and one woman says, how do I get to Grand Central Station? And the other woman says, well, if I wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. So you can't, you can't start from where we're starting from, right? You can't start from the premise that we are nasty, naturally nasty, beastly human beings that need institutions to behave ourselves. You have to start from the premise of we are naturally, and Darwin says this too, by the way, we are naturally morally good and that we are social animals and that we start from that place and that we need to nurture that place of We are naturally moral animals and also social animals, moral and social. And we start from that place and then we begin to build a culture that nurtures that lovely, amazing, extraordinary capacity to connect to ourselves and each other and to treat each other in moral ways. And so that's what we need to go back to. And then then we lead our lives with that knowledge, holding on to that knowledge in everything we do in every single thing we do, that we are naturally moral and social human beings, and we can bring that out in anyone. Beautiful. I just led a couple's listening circle last night. It's a 12-week circle. And what you just said, we said, look, listening is not a skill. It's a value. And you're going to bring this value everywhere you go. And that's what I hear you saying. You're saying, community, wake up and bring this everywhere. Live this every day. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And and think of it in some ways, ways, think about that young people are saying, really looking up to us and saying, what's wrong with you people? I mean, that's literally what they're saying in in novels, in the research, in our fiction, in our movies, uh, Rebel Without a Cause is actually Rebel with a Cause. That's the name of my other book. Um, And the idea is they're saying, what's wrong with you people, meaning you adults, that you've created a culture that is so out of sync with our nature. Um, And so at some level, respond to that call, that demand of implicit in that question, what's wrong with you people? Um, And so it it, it is absolutely going back to that notion that listening is a value. Learning, we got to reimagine those concepts, though. Listening is not just simply about shutting up. It's about actually engaging with people around their questions, Um, learning from someone else about the answers to your own questions, valuing interpersonal curiosity. Seeing connection, not just as connecting on social media, but actually on being see- allowing someone to feel seen and heard and listened to as a critical part of a connection. And then hopefully the person that's mutual. So that's when a genuine thick connection happens. Um, so it, it really is reimagining starting from a different place. That's where I want to leave it, Tracy. I, we need to start from a place of humanity, right? And who we are as humans in order to, for us to get to a more just and humane place. Um, and until we start from that new place, uh, we're never going to get there. I love this. Thank you so much for being here with us. And for everyone that's listening in, there are a whole host of show notes 
below the podcast episode where you can find information about Niobe, about her research, about Patch, about her books. And you're going to find all kinds, you're going to go down the rabbit hole and become a, a real activist for human connection, I assure you, as soon as you start digging into Niobe and some of her students and some of her uh, co-conspirators' work. So thank you for the work you do in the world, for being an inspiration to me. You've been a hero of mine for a long, long time, and it's a real, real honor. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. This is such a great interview. I so enjoyed it. And Tracy, you are just such an inspiration. I'm so I'm so delighted to be interviewed by someone doing the kind of work you're doing. It's just so gorgeous. So thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.